Ezekiel chapter 3, Ezekiel chapter 3, verses 22 through 27. And then once we finish breaking this, the rest of chapter 3 down, we'll get into chapter 4 tonight. Uh, verses 22 through 27, it says, And the hand of the Lord was upon me there. And he said to me, Arise, go out into the valley, and there I will speak with you. So I arose and I went out into the valley, and behold, the glory of the Lord stood there, like the glory that I had seen by the Kebar Canal, and I fell on my face. But the Spirit entered into me and set me on my feet, and he spoke with me, and he said to me, Go, shut yourself within your house, and you, O son of man, behold, cords will be placed upon you, and you shall be bound with them, so that you cannot go out among the people." And I will make your tongue cling to the roof of your mouth so that you shall be mute and unable to reprove them, for they are a rebellious house. But when I speak with you, I will open your mouth and you shall say to them, thus says the Lord God, he who will hear, let him hear, and he who will refuse to hear, let him refuse, for they are a rebellious house. Now, when we left off last time, we saw Ezekiel was sitting in mourning among the Israelites at the Kebar Canal there in Babylon. Now, if you remember, the last time we were here, we saw how the Spirit of God had picked him up and carried him to that spot. And he spent seven days in complete silence mourning with those who were the Israelites from the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom on the banks of the river there, the Kevar Canal. But now, after that time of mourning, the Spirit of God speaks to Ezekiel and tells him to go out into the valley. And the God is going to speak to him there. And I want to take some time tonight to just kind of deal with something that's here. There's something I don't want anybody to miss. And so we're going to take some time to look at it. God will many times, and we're going to look at a lot of times in Scripture, bring us to a point where he orchestrates and he leads out in getting us alone with him so that he can speak to us. And there's a value for all of us in finding those times, especially when God orchestrates our lives to the point that we realize we need it, Finding those times where we shut everything else off, tune everything else out, and really get alone with God. Now, if you've been a Christian for any length of time, you've been through this, this experience more than once. Where God orchestrates your life in such a way that you finally just realize, until I get a word from God, I don't know what else to do. I have to hear from God. And you will at those times fast, you will at those times Turn off the TV, you will at those times stop doing anything until you hear from God. And I want to show you from Scripture tonight that this is actually that something God does a lot. And it's a very common pattern that he follows. Now, let me say this real quick. God has patterns that show us that it's him. But he doesn't have formulas. Okay? Do you understand what I'm saying? What I'm saying is, is there's patterns in the Scripture to help us understand who God is and who he's not. But when we start turning them into a formula where we think we have him figured out, that's where we get ourselves into trouble. So turn with me to the first pattern that I'm going to take you. Go to Exodus chapter 3. In Exodus chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. It says, Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law, Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness, and he came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. And when the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, Here I am. Then he said, Do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I'm the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Now I want you to help me out a little bit here. Uh, did Moses grow up in the wilderness tending sheep? No. Where did Moses grow up? In the palace. I mean, he was an adopted son of Pharaoh's daughter. I mean, he had lived a very, very nice in the world's eyes life. Yet as he got older and he saw how the Egyptians were treating the Israelites, his people, he killed an Egyptian. And then word started to spread that he had done so and he ran for his life and he just got out of there. And he ends up spending a long period of time tending sheep for his father-in-law. Again, God orchestrated things in Moses' life to get him to a place where he would get him alone and quiet so that he would speak to him. You're going to see this pattern continue. Go to Exodus chapter 19. 
Exodus chapter 19, look at verses 1 through 6. It says, On the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on the day that they came to the wilderness of Sinai, they set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain, while Moses went up to God. The Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings, and brought you to myself. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice, and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. Once again, we see God now taking the nation of Israel out of Egypt, but he brings them into the wilderness. Now, the Bible tells us there's a couple of reasons why he brought them into the wilderness. One of them is if they had gone the short route into the promised land, they would have had to go through Philistine country and they would have had to face war and they weren't ready for war. Actually, God said you would have tried to go back to Egypt. Oh, by the way, when he brought them the long way through the wilderness, what did they still try to do? <laughs> we want to go back to Egypt. Even though they couldn't find their way probably by that point. But here now, at the same time, he brings the nation out into the wilderness, and then he tells Moses to come up onto the mountain by himself, again, away from the people. And again, we're going to see this pattern over and over. When God tells Ezekiel, I want you to go out into the valley so I can speak to you there, I want you to understand that there are many times in our lives that God will intentionally control and orchestrate our circumstances to get us to the point where we realize, I have to be alone with God, and I have to hear from God and only God. Go to Joshua chapter 5. And usually, as you will see in each of these patterns, usually when God brings someone out to these kind of situations, he has a word for them. In Joshua chapter 5, look at verses 13 through 15. It says, When Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man was standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you for us or our adversaries? And he said, No, but I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshipped and said to him, What does my Lord say to his servant? And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, Take off your sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. Now again, we see in this situation, Joshua's out as he's now replaced Moses, and he's the leader of Israel, and Moses is dead at this point, and they've come to Jericho, and Joshua's out on a little walk, if you will, by himself, and he, God reveals himself. You say, wait a minute, this is just an angel. No, it's not. I can prove to you it's not an angel. Do you remember in our study of Revelation, the two times that John fell down and worshipped at the feet of an angel? What did the angel say to him when he did it? Get up quick. I'm just a fellow servant like you. You know, you only worship God. But here we see the commander of the army of the Lord say the exact same thing that God said to Moses when he was at the burning bush. Take off your sandals. You're on holy ground. He was standing before God himself. I believe without question, a, a pre-incarnate, before Jesus took on his flesh, a appearance of Jesus himself. But again, God orchestrated Joshua's circumstances to get him to a place where he'd get him away from the people so he could speak to him. Go to 1 Samuel chapter 3. First Samuel chapter 3, we look at verses 1 through 10. Now the boy Samuel was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli. And the word of the Lord was rare in those days. Keep that in mind. There was no frequent vision. At that time, Eli, whose eyesight had grown, begun to grow dim so that he could not see, was lying down in his own place. The lamp of God had not yet gone out, and Samuel was lying down in the temple of the Lord where the ark of God was. Then the Lord called Samuel, and he said, Here I am. And he ran to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. But he said, I didn't call. Lie down again. So he went and laid down, and the Lord called again Samuel. And Samuel arose and went to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. But he said, I didn't call my son. Lie down again. Now Samuel did not yet know the Lord, and the word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him. And the Lord called Samuel again the third time, and he arose and he went to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. Then Eli perceived that the Lord was calling the boy. Therefore Eli said to Samuel, Go, lie down, and if he calls you, you shall say, Speak, Lord, for your servant hears. So Samuel went and lay down in his place. And the Lord came and stood, calling as, as at other times, Samuel, Samuel. And Samuel said, Speak, for your servant hears. Now, again, help me out. How come Samuel's 
in the temple at this time. Because his mother had dedicated. Remember, Hannah had been praying for a son, and she was unable to bear any children. And she prayed, and God answered her prayer. And she dedicated this child to the Lord. And when she had weaned him, she brought him to the temple. And there he served, and he was raised by Eli. And actually, Eli and his, uh, his real sons, Hophni and Phileas, at this point had become to become wicked. And they actually were going through the motions of their priesthood, but they actually were serving themselves and not God. But in this situation, God gets a hold of Samuel, and he's orchestrated Samuel's life to get him away from everything else so that he can speak to him. And I don't know how many of you know this, but the next verses actually show us what God now tells Samuel to go to say to Eli. And the short version is this. The word of the Lord came to Samuel the first time he hears God speak and recognizes God speaking to him. He says, I want you to go tell Eli that I'm going to kill him and his sons because of their wickedness. How about that for a heavy one? Aren't you? Well, if I were Samuel, I'd be glad that the situation had been orchestrated the way it was, that I knew it was the voice of God. Because Moses saw the burning bush, and he was wondering why the bush didn't burn. And I'm telling you one thing, that was a very strong confirmation that he was hearing from God because he was about to go back to Pharaoh now who could kill him and say, oh, God wants his people to be set free and you're just to let them go. And if you know the story, things didn't go well for Moses when he did that at the beginning. Things blew up in his face for a while to where the Jews even hated him. And what I want you to hear again as we are looking at this passage in Ezekiel 3, how God says to him, go out into the valley, I'm going to speak to you there, is that there's this pattern. And I'm going to show you a couple more places real quick where God intentionally will many times in our lives bring us to a circumstance or a set of circumstances, bring us to a place where we need to hear from God. And you just need to tune everything else out and get alone. And sometimes he'll bring you to that place. The Bible teaches that we're to regularly do it on our own, but many of us, unfortunately, have a bad habit of not doing that. Go to Isaiah chapter 6. God now takes Isaiah to another realm. Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 through 8, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings, with two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, with two he flew, and one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, the whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts." Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and he said, Behold, this has touched your lips and your guilt is taken away, your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, Here am I, or here I am, send me. Again, we see here again, God orchestrating Isaiah's life to the point that he actually in a vision takes him into the throne room of God in heaven. And there he speaks to him. Let me take you to one more passage. Uh, actually, let's make it two more passages. Go to Galatians chapter 1. Galatians chapter 1, verses 11 through 24. Paul's speaking here in verse 11 of Galatians 1. He says, For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I didn't receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. For you've heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who had called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone. Nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then after three years, I went to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remained with him 15 days and so on. Look at what happens here. Paul says, when I got saved, when Jesus revealed himself to me, remember on the road to Damascus, he was on his way to kill the Christians and have them put into prison. Jesus shows up and blinds him and, and he has him be led by his hand into this town where he's now to be prayed for by a man named Ananias. And right after that, what did God have Paul do? 
go to the seminary and be taught what everybody else was taught? He took him out into the wilderness, in the desert of Arabia, where he was taught by Jesus face to face himself. Now there's debate as to how long he was there. Some people think it was three years because here he says that then three years later I went to Jerusalem. I don't know the exact length of time, but I can tell you this much. God orchestrated Paul's life to get him alone in a way so that he could speak to him. In Matthew chapter 6, we're not going to turn there. In Matthew chapter 6, verses 5 and 6, Jesus is teaching on prayer. And he talks about not doing our praying so that other people can see. But he said, when you pray, go where? Go into your closet. And good when God who sees in secret will hear you. Now listen closely. The Bible also says that we're to pray without ceasing. I mean, we're to be praying while we work. We're to be praying while we drive our cars. We're to be talking to the Lord while we're doing business at the bank. We're to be talking to the Lord while we're taking care of all the things that we do in everyday life. We're hopefully walking in a continual communication to the Lord. But there's a need, there's a time for us to spend alone with him where everything else is tuned out. And I'll be honest with you, during this hurricane... God orchestrated my life in such a way I don't have time to go into the details and a lot of the things are personal. But through all that went on in the chaos of the days, uh, some of you saw the, 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 the email that went out that we were canceling Tuesday night's study. I don't know if you caught it. We canceled it an hour and a half before the study was to begin. Too many things had to tell you the story of all that God did. But I thought we were going to have Bible study Tuesday night. I thought we were going to have Bible study Wednesday night. And then the storm changed course and things started to happen in the Atlantic where there was no electricity or no air conditioning. And we had to quickly make decisions. And actually, by 11 o'clock the next day, we were heading to Gainesville as we were evacuating with everything thrown together in the car, taking some friends of ours with us who were a senior adult couple and heading with my brother and his family as well to Gainesville to my wife's parents. And while we were there, one of the people that we were there with got sick. And she spent the whole time we were evacuating in Shan's hospital. And I spent most of my time in Shan's hospital. And folks, let me just say to you, as I was sitting there in a waiting room outside the cardiac care unit, with nobody else there, and the TV in the room didn't work, I sat there and I read my Bible, and I spent an hour dealing with and just having God direct me to passages where we wrestle with not understanding all that God is doing. And it was during that time that God began to show me things that I'm not supposed to share with you because they're between me and him. But I'm grateful for my time in the hospital. It didn't go according to my plan. I had brought my clubs with me. I had planned to play some golf while I evacuated because that's what you do while you suffer. While there's a hurricane, you bring your clubs and you go play golf. But God had other plans. And when God says to Ezekiel, go out into the valley... I'm going to speak to you there. Let me just say to you, I don't know what's going on in your life, but I can promise you that there have been times or there may be times right now where things are happening where you don't know what's going on or why God is allowing it or what's actually happening. And I'm going to tell you, stop trying to figure out the answer why, but realize he's orchestrating your life in such a way to get you to tune everything else out so that he can speak to you. So the sooner you go to the valley... The wilderness, the desert of Arabia. You, understand, you see the pictures here? Away from mom, in Samuel's case. Whatever it is, the sooner you'll be able to hear the voice of God. And God didn't answer my questions the way I thought he was going to. But I've got a peace because I've heard from God. And he actually gave me a message. But that's for another time. Go back to Ezekiel chapter 3. After bringing Ezekiel out into the valley, he then says something very interesting to him. He tells him to go into his house and accomplish his ministry from there. He was to be a prophet to the people from his house and not to go out among the people. Jump over to chapter 8. You'll see it. In chapter 8, look at verse 1. In Ezekiel chapter 8, verse 1. In the sixth year, in the sixth month, in the fifth day of the month, as I sat in my house... With the elders of Judah sitting before me, the hand of the Lord fell upon me there. Isn't this interesting? God has commissioned him to be a prophet and to speak to the people. But he says to him, I don't want you to go out among the people. I want you to go in your house and do it there. Now, again, let me say this to you. Whenever we try to deal with why, there's always more than one answer. 
God never is doing one thing. I've said it before. I'll say it again. Whenever someone says, I know what God is doing, they've just shown their ignorance. Because you may see one small aspect of what God is doing. He's doing many, many things on so many different levels. By the way, I will tell you this much. While I was in that waiting room, looking at passages in Ecclesiastes and Job, wrestling with why, he showed me in Job chapter 37, verses 11 through 13, a hurricane. A lot of you may not know, may not know it. And write it down and look at it later on. But in Job 37, verses 11 through 13, God speaking through Elihu says that God is the one who fills the clouds with moisture and lightning and he turns them around and around to accomplish his purposes. And they do whatever he wants to do across the whole habitable world. And the three reasons he has for the storm are for correction or the land or for love. Isn't that crazy? Let me ask you a quick question. What was God's purpose for Matthew? Was it correction? Was it to bless the land? Or was it for love? The answer is yes. Because for some, he used the storm to correct and to rebuke and to get their attention. And don't be Job's friends and try to figure out who those people are. For other things, we can see the land actually was blessed through the storm. Crazy as it sounds. Some of the forests got trimmed a little bit, didn't they? There was a whole lot less Spanish moss on the property we were at. But he also demonstrated his love through the storm, did he not? He has his reasons and he has his purposes. But he's told Ezekiel, I want you to go and just do your ministry from within your house. Boy, that blows up all our theology, doesn't it? Because churches today thinking, are thinking we have to market ourselves. We have to get our name out there. We have to have a great spot on the corner. We have to send out the mail outs. We have to make the phone calls. We need to get out there. But here God says, no, actually, I'm going to do all of it through you just sitting in your house. And oh, by the way, I'm going to make it so that you don't go out. And on top of that, I'm going to make it so your mouth doesn't even speak until I let you speak. So I'm going to ask you a question tonight. Again, there, there are many answers to this question. But why would God... What are some reasons why in your mind, why do you think God would have Ezekiel accomplish his purpose of being a prophet to the nation of Israel that's in captivity there from his house instead of going out among the people? Our thinking thinks he'd get more done if he went out. Why? Those who are obedient to hear, you're really close to where we're going to go. You're very, very close. And I, and I agree with you. I'm going to word it just a little bit differently. What are some other options? Sorry? Timing, definitely. He has his timing. God has his purposes in timing. This way, God gets the glory. Definitely not man's marketing schemes or how hard he worked and how many doors he knocked on. Someone, I don't even remember who it was, told me a story. Actually, I do remember who she was. She's not here. She shared how she got saved because relatives of hers had spent a week at their church knocking on doors to get, lead people to Jesus. The church spent the whole week knocking on doors. And on the last night, they were going to have a party at the end celebrating all the people that got saved. She was invited to the party. And so she likes free food. She came to the party. Nobody got saved through their week of knocking on doors. But while she was there at the party to celebrate all the people we we're going to save by knocking on doors, she saw the four spiritual laws sitting there at a table and this lady said, do you know what that is? And she said, no. She said, can I show it to you? And the lady led her to Jesus right there. And the relative who came to the party for the celebration of all the people that are going to get saved from all their week of knocking on doors, she was the only one that got saved that week at the party. Isn't God awesome? Stop thinking that if we just do it this way. Stop believing all the books that say if you do it this way, they'll get saved. And the people that are doing it this way, God won't. No, man, God's big. There's no formula. There are patterns, but there's no formula. And what Allison brought out, we're going to deal with. I want to show you from Scripture that one of the many reasons for why God tells Ezekiel to be in his house is a big part of, for those who have ears to hear, is the individuals who are being drawn by God responding to the drawing of God and going and looking for the answer. Remember how I told you God's going to orchestrate your lives to get you to where you intentionally tune everything else out and you go get alone with him? When he's doing a work in someone's heart, they still must respond. 
Go with me to um, Matthew chapter 11. I'm going to do this fast because there's still quite a bit for us to cover, and we're going to try to get a lot of verses done in chapter 4 tonight. But in Matthew chapter 11, look at verses 28 through 30. Jesus says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Look at what Jesus says. Now, again, as we look at all these scriptures, please keep in mind, no one comes to the Father unless the Spirit does His work in their heart first. God begins by drawing. God is the one who's the original seeker. Yet, as you're going to see from scripture, when God begins to do His work, they must then respond appropriately, or what God has begun doesn't take root. Remember, the seed was scattered. Some fell on the rocky soil. Some fell on the thorny soil. Some fell on hard path. Some fell on the good soil. It's how we respond to what God's doing in our heart, which will show whether or not someone really is saved. And what does Jesus say in the first three words? Come to me. Come to me. Go to John chapter 7. John chapter 7, verses 37 through 39. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him, we see it again, come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Holy Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Again, Jesus said, whoever's thirsty, come to me. Go to John chapter 6, back up one chapter, chapter 6, look at verse 35. Jesus said to them, I'm the bread of life. Whoever, there it is again, comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Go to Jeremiah 29. This is a very familiar passage to a lot of us, but many of us have never really looked at all the verses surrounding it. Jeremiah chapter 29, look at verses 10 through 14. This is a message by the prophet Jeremiah to the nation of Israel in this time period that we're looking at in Ezekiel's writings. Remember, Jeremiah and Ezekiel are contemporaries. Jeremiah was starting his prophecy ministry and his preaching ministry 20 years before Ezekiel did. Jeremiah preaches from the city of Jerusalem and from the nation of Israel. Ezekiel begins his ministry in Babylon as a captive. But they're at the same time preaching. And in this time period where Jeremiah is being used of God to preach to the nation of Israel, and especially the the southern kingdom of Judah and the city of Jerusalem, that they're going to be destroyed and taken out of the land. During this time period, God gives this prophecy through him in chapter 29, verse 10. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and you will come and pray to me and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I've driven you, declares the Lord. And I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. This message was for Israel. But look at what he says. There's going to come a point where you're going to come to me. Hebrews 11.6, you don't have to turn there. The scripture says, without faith it's impossible to please God for those who, for you must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who diligently seek him. A big reason, there's lots of reasons why, but one of the big reasons why God is having Ezekiel do his ministry from within his house is, as Allison said, those who are going to be responding obediently to the call of God. Remember, God's calling all the exiles in Babylon But those who have ears to hear are going to be the ones who are going to go and find the word from God. I love the fact that we saw in chapter 8, verse 1, that he was preaching and all the elders of Israel were in his house. That's a good sign. That's a good sign. doesn't mean they're going to respond appropriately, but they were responding, at least seeking. And real quickly, before we jump on to chapter 4, as we saw last time we were together, we also, like Ezekiel, must only speak what God says to say and when God says to say it. I'll tell you this quickly. Go over to chapter 4 of Ezekiel as, as I tell you this quick story. Years ago, when I was a youth pastor at First Baptist in the Atlantic, uh, we had taken our young people to this camp. 
And there were uh, a young girl and a young boy. They were brother and sister, actually part of a large family in the church. And just recently, their grandmother had passed away and their older brother had committed suicide. And these two young people in this one family that I was close with came to this camp along with the rest of the youth group. And they were really dealing with the loss of the grandmother and the brother who had just months before had committed suicide. These kids were going through a rough time. And I got a knock on my cabin that I was counselor of, and one of the counselors from the girls' cabin said that this one girl from this one family really needed to talk to me. So I got up, and it was dark out. And we went and sat on these swings overlooking this lake. And as we sat there, looking at the lake, she said to me, she said, Jim, have you ever wondered if God's even there? She said, I've been raised in a Christian family and I've been taught in the church, but I'm really having a hard time right now. Is he even there? And God gave me a word for her. I said, why don't you just sit here and ask him to reveal himself to you then? I said, just ask him. Sit here right on the swing and ask him to show you that he's here. I began to just pray for her. It wasn't maybe 30 seconds later. She goes, did you see that? I said, no, what? She goes, well, can you at least see that? And I'm like, what are we looking at? She goes, look at the lake. And I looked at the lake. I, she goes, do you see the path? And I did. There was a reflection from the moon that night on the lake. We had the clouds and the moon were in the sky. And the reflection on the lake as we were looking at the lake, everything matched except between us and the other side of the lake, there was a path cut, like the center aisle here, there was a path cut from my shore to the other shore, straight as a razor's edge on each side where there was no reflection of what was in the sky. It was dark. God had made a path from our side of the lake to the other side with two razor sharp edges. And then the clouds and the reflection were all on each side. She goes, do you at least see the path? I said, yes, I do. She said, when you asked me to tell, ask God if he existed, I asked him to show me. And that road opened up from our side to the other side of the lake. And on the other side, I saw my grandmother and I saw my brother. And they said, we're fine. The preacher in me was ready to preach. <laughs> and I was struck mute. I'm telling you, I know it's a miracle of Old Testament proportions, but it really happened. I couldn't say a word. Everything I tried to say, nothing would come out. And it was as if God was saying, I don't need you. He doesn't need you. Speak when he tells you to speak. And don't speak if he doesn't tell you to speak. This whole, we've got to, we've got to, we've got to, has got to be burnt out and killed in the church. It's of the flesh. We're to be led of the Spirit. And what did Jesus say? I only do what my father leads me to do. But Lord, don't you think you ought to? Lord, don't you think we should? How, do you remember how many conversations people came up to Jesus saying, should we call down fire? Should, well, we told them to stop preaching. They're not one of us. Um, you, you should be going to the feast right now. Tell my sister to help me. Lord, if you'd been here, my brother wouldn't have died. Why don't you come quick? Jesus calmly only did what the father was leading him to do. And Ezekiel was told, I'm going to use you. But I'm just going to use you in your house. And I'm not going to let you go out among the people. And you only speak when I tell you to speak. You'll be amazed how much God's allowed to do when we stop trying to do for God. Go to chapter 4. Ezekiel chapter 4. Yes, ma'am, go for it. It's a big part of it. It's a big part of it. Well, and honestly, that, it, it, that's one of the many possible reasons. That's one of the many possible reasons. Ezekiel chapter 4, verses 1 through 17. And you, son of man. By the way, I'm going to give you a little heads up. If you didn't read ahead, it's about to get crazy. And you, son of man, take a brick and lay it before you and engrave, it on, engrave on it a city, even Jerusalem, and put siege works against it and build a siege wall against it, and cast up a mound against it, set camps also against it, 
and plant battering rams against it all around. And you take an iron griddle and place it as an iron wall between you and the city and set your face toward it. And let it be in a state of siege and press the siege against it. And this is a sign for the house of Israel. Then lie on your left side and place the punishment of the house of Israel upon it. For the number of the days that you lie on it, you shall bear their punishment. For us, I assign to you a number of days, 390 days, equal to the number of years of their punishment. So long shall you bear the punishment of the house of Israel. And when you have completed these, you shall lie down a second time, but on your right side, and bear the punishment of the house of Judah. Forty days I assign you, a day for each year. And you shall set your face toward the siege of Jerusalem with your arm bared, and you shall prophesy against the city. And behold, I will place cords upon you so that you cannot turn from one side to the other till you have completed the days of your siege. And you take wheat and barley, beans and lentils, millet and emmer, and put them into a single vessel and make your bread from them. During the number of days that you lie on your side, 390 days, you shall eat of it. And your food that you eat shall be by weight, 20 shekels a day from day to day you shall eat it. And water you shall drink by measure, the sixth part of a hin. From day to day you shall drink, and you shall eat it as a barley cake, baking it in their sight on human dung. And the Lord said, Thus shall the people of Israel eat their bread unclean among the nations where I will drive them. Then I said, Ah, Lord God, behold, I have never defiled myself. From my youth up till now I have never eaten what died of itself or was torn by beasts, nor has tainted meat come into my mouth. Then he said to me, See, I assign to you cow's dung instead of human dung, on which you may prepare your bread. Moreover, he said to me, Son of man, behold, I will break the supply of bread in Jerusalem. They shall eat bread by weight and with anxiety, and they shall drink water by, the, by measure and in dismay. I will do this, that they may lack bread and water and look at one another in dismay and rot away because of their punishment. Now here we see God speaking, one of the first prophecies of Ezekiel now to give to the people who are going to be in Jerusalem about the judgment that is coming. But he's told to do it in a very interesting way. He's told to take a brick and either write the name of Jerusalem on it or carve on it, engrave on it so that it's clear the brick represents Jerusalem. And he's to then set it on the ground and he's to take dirt and build walls and siege works up against it. If you don't know what that is, back in the day when the cities were walled cities, when nations would come to attack the walled cities, you really just can't come attack them. That's what the walls are for. So they would take time and dirt and move dirt and build walls and ramps, if you will, to be able to get up and into the city. As you know, the city of Jerusalem fell in 586 B.C., but a lot of people don't realize the siege of Jerusalem, the attack of Jerusalem, started in 588. It took two years for them to finally attack and destroy Jerusalem. Why? Because they were building dirt up around the walls and building ramps so they could come up to attack it. And he's to lay on his side for 390 days on his left side to talk about the punishment of Israel. And then he's to lay on his right side for 40 days to talk about the punishment of Jerusalem. And we'll deal, I mean, sorry, Judah. And we'll deal with that next time we come together. We won't get into that tonight. That's too big of a discussion for, for tonight. But at the same time, we see that he's to also have as this, he's building this Siege, a little play, if you will, or a diorama for everybody to see as he's showing Israel and Jerusalem is going to be attacked and going to, the city is going to be destroyed. He's to also put iron griddle between him and the city. That's going to be something kind of cool in just a second that I'm going to show you. But I want you to also understand, as we go back, I'm going to show you two passages. I'm going to read them to you. One's long, one's not. I'm going to show you that everything, plus some other things we're going to get to later in our study, that Ezekiel prophesies here actually happened in the destruction of Jerusalem in 588 to 586 B.C. Go back with me to 2 Kings chapter 25. People have a hard time because 2 Kings is before Ezekiel in our Bibles in order. And they think that what happens in 2 Kings happens before Ezekiel, but that's not the case. Ezekiel prophesies about what we're about to read about in 2 Kings 25. He prophesies before it happens. But I want you, as we look at 2 Kings 25, verses 1 through 26, listen to how what Ezekiel had been told by God to tell the nation of Israel actually happens. In 2 Kings 25, 1 through 26, And in the ninth year of his reign, in the tenth month, 
On the tenth day of the month, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came with all his army against Jerusalem, and he laid siege to it. And they built siege works all around it. So the city was besieged till the eleventh year of King Zedekiah. On the ninth day of the fourth month, the famine was so severe in the city that there was no food for the people of the land. Then a breach was made in the city, and all the men of war fled by night by the way of the gate between the two walls by the king's garden. And the Chaldeans were around the city, and they went in the direction of the Arabah. But the army of the Chaldeans pursued the king and overtook him in the plains of Jericho, and all his army was scattered from him. They, then they captured the king and brought him up to the king of Babylon at Riblah, and they passed sentence on him. They slaughtered the sons of Zedekiah before his eyes and put out the eyes of Zedekiah and bound him in chains and took him to Babylon. Don't know if you caught what's going on here, but they kill his sons right in front of him, and then they poke his eyes out. So the last thing he saw, the last thing that's going to stick in his mind is the death of his son. In the fifth month of the seventh day of the month, that was the 19th year of King Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar Dan, the captain of the bodyguard, a servant of the king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem. And he burned the house of the Lord and the king's house and all the houses of Jerusalem. Every great house he burned down. And all the army of the Chaldeans who were with the captain of the guard broke down the walls around Jerusalem. And the rest of the people who were left in the city and the deserters who had deserted to the king of Babylon together with the rest of the multitude, Nebuchadnezzar Dan, the captain of the guard carried into exile, but the captain of the guard left some of the poorest of the land to be vine dressers and plowmen. And the pillars of bronze that were in the house of the Lord and the stands and the bronze sea that were in the house of the Lord, the Chaldeans broke in pieces and carried the bronze to Babylon. And they took away the pots and the shovels and the snuffers and the dishes for incense and all the vessels of bronze used in the temple service. The firepans also in the bowls. What was of gold, the captain of the guard took away as gold. And what was of silver, as silver. As for the two pillars, one, the one sea and the stands that Solomon had made for the house of the Lord, the bronze of all these vessels was beyond weight. The height of the one pillar was 18 cubits. And on it was a capital of bronze. The height of the capital was three cubits. The latticework and pomegranates, all of bronze, were all around the capital. And the second pillar had the same with the latticework. And the captain of the guard took Sariah, the chief priest, and Zephaniah, the second priest, and the three keepers of the threshold. And from the city he took an officer who had been in command of the men of war, and five men of the king's council who were found in the city, and the secretary of the commander of the army who mustered the people of the land, and sixty men of the people of the land who were found in the city. And Nebuzardan, the captain of the guard, took them and brought them to the king of Babylon at Riblah. And the king of Babylon struck them down and put them to death at Riblah in the land of Hamath. So Judah was taken into exile out of its land. And over the people who remained in the land of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had left, he appointed Gedaliah, the son of Ahikam, the son of Shaphan, governor. Now when all the captains and their men heard that the king of Babylon had appointed Gedaliah governor, they came with their men to Gedaliah at Mizpah, namely Ishmael, the son of Nethaniah, and Johanan, the son of Kareah, and Sariah, the son of Tanamuth, and the Netabathite, and Jezaniah, the son of the Machathite, and Gedaliah swore to them and their men, saying, Do not be afraid because of the Chaldean officials. Live in the land and serve the king of Babylon, and it shall be well with you. But in the seventh month, Ishmael, the son of Nethaniah, the son of Elishama, of the royal family, came with ten men and struck down Gedaliah and put him to death along with the Jews and the Chaldeans who were with him at Mizpah. Then all the people, both small and great, and the captains of the forces arose and went to Egypt, for they were afraid of the Chaldeans. Now, I read you this long section for a couple of reasons. One, I want you to see that everything that Ezekiel has prophesied so far is happening in when it, the destruction actually comes, the siege works and all that. Also, you're going to see, not tonight, but later on in our study, he's going to continue prophesying about specific things that are going to happen, and you're going to see some of those things happen in that section we read, and other things are going to, we're going to read later on. I want you to understand something. Ezekiel is prophesying through, remember, who's the one that's speaking through Ezekiel? Only God. He's not even allowed to speak unless God opens his mouth. So there's no chance that Ezekiel's words are coming out. This is God's words. And just as Ezekiel prophesies literally about what was going to happen in the destruction of Jerusalem in 586 B.C., 588 to 586 B.C., 
just as literally as it happened, listen closely. We're going to at some point in our study of Ezekiel get to the point where the history of what we just read about in chapter 25 of 2 Kings actually lines up with the time period of when Ezekiel is prophesying, when he hears that the city is destroyed. And from that point on in our book of Ezekiel, Ezekiel's prophecies are all about what is going to happen in the millennial kingdom. I want you to see that everything Ezekiel says is going to happen literally happens in his destruction prophecies in the first part of the book of Ezekiel. Therefore, confirming in your hearts that everything he says that is still going to happen is going to literally happen. Do you understand? We can't just say, well, that was all literal, but from this point, we're just to symbolize it. No, this is literally going to happen. Go to Jeremiah chapter 39 real quick. I'll just read to you 10 verses. Jeremiah 39. We see Jeremiah now. Remember, he is prophesying. And now in, at this point, he actually talks about what happens. Jeremiah 39. In the ninth year of Zedekiah, king of Judah, in the tenth month, Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, and all his army came against Jerusalem and besieged it. In the eleventh year of Zedekiah, in the fourth month, on the ninth day of the month, a breach was made in the city. Then all the officials of the king of Babylon came and sat in the middle gate. Nergal, Sarazer, uh, James, come up here and read these names for me. Uh, of, of Samgar, Nebuzechem of Rabsaris, Nergazilzezer of Rent. Boy, that's, you know, you see it right there. With all the rest of the officers of the king of Babylon. When Zedekiah, the king of Judah, and all the soldiers saw them, they fled going out of the city at night by way of the king's garden through the gate between the two walls, and they went toward the Arabah. But the army of the Chaldeans pursued them and overtook Zedekiah in the plains of Jericho. And when they had taken him, they brought him up to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, at Riblah in the land of Hamath. And he passed sentence on him. The king of Babylon slaughtered the sons of Zedekiah at Riblah before his eyes. And the king of Babylon slaughtered all the nobles of Judah. He put out the eyes of Zedekiah and bound him in chains to take him to Babylon. The Chaldeans burned the king's house and the house of the people and broke down the walls of Jerusalem. Then Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, carried into exile to Babylon the rest of the people who were left in the city, those who had deserted to him and the people who remained. Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, left in the land of Judah some of the poor people who owned nothing and gave them vineyards and fields at that same time. Now again, we see another account of what we said Ezekiel's prophesying is going to happen. We see that it literally takes place. There are some things that we read tonight in 2 Kings 25 and Jeremiah 39 that Ezekiel's going to still prophesy about. But I wanted you to begin to see what he says is going to happen actually, actually happened. Now, what I want to do is I want to kind of, in the time we have left tonight, take you on a study that I had never seen. And when I began to see it, I got giggly. You know how when God starts to show you something, it's so, I couldn't wait to show you. This is what I've been waiting to get to all night. Ezekiel is told to build this play, if you will, diorama of what's going to happen to Jerusalem. And as he faces the city, he's to put an iron griddle between him and the people. Go to Leviticus chapter 26. I know some of you say, Leviticus? How could you get excited about Leviticus? Leviticus is the book that everybody quits reading the Bible at. They started in Genesis, because they figured we're going to start at the beginning and read through the Bible. In Genesis, there's some really cool stories. In Exodus, they get even better. And then you get Leviticus, and everybody says, you know what, I think I'm going to take a break from reading the Bible for a little bit. In Leviticus 26, look at verses 14 through 19. Listen to what God says here. Leviticus 26, starting in verse 14. But if you will not listen to me, God says, and will not do all these commandments. Remember, this was written by who? Besides God, who did he use? Moses. This is the first five books of the Bible. This was written way back before the nation of Israel even in, went into the promised land. Don't miss this. Written long before they even went into the promised land. He says, if you will not listen to me and will not do all these commandments, if you will spurn my statutes and in your soul abhors my rules so that you will not do all my commandments but break my covenant, then I will do this to you. I will visit you with panic, with wasting disease and fever that consume the eyes and make the heart ache. And you shall sow your seed in vain for your enemies shall eat it. 
And I will set my face against you, and you, you shall be struck down before your enemies. Those who hate you shall rule over you. And you shall flee when none pursues you. And in, if in spite of this you will not listen to me, then I will discipline you again sevenfold for your sins. And I will break the pride of your power, and I will make your heavens like what? Like iron, and your earth like bronze. Isn't that interesting that Ezekiel is told, put the city here and face the city and put iron between you and the city. God had told them way back in Leviticus chapter 26, if you don't obey me, I'm going to do these things to get your attention and bring you back. But if you continue to walk in disobedience, I'm going to multiply all these judgments sevenfold and the sky is going to become like iron to you. In other words, I won't listen. I won't listen. Oh, I'm going to keep reading, though. I want you to keep reading in verses 20 through 39 because I want to walk you through something in these verses here. And your strength shall be spent in vain, Leviticus 20, 26, 20. And your strength shall be spent in vain, for your land shall not yield its increase, and the trees of the land shall not yield their fruit. Then if you walk contrary to me and will not listen to me, I'll continue striking you sevenfold for your sins, and I will let loose the wild beasts against you, which shall bereave you and your children. Of, of your children and destroy your livestock and make you few in number so that your roads shall be deserted. And if by this discipline you're not turned to me, but walk contrary to me, then I also will walk contrary to you and I myself will strike you sevenfold for your sins. And I will bring a sword upon you that shall execute vengeance for the covenant. And if you will gather within your cities, I'll send pestilence among you and you shall be delivered in the hand of the enemy." When I break your supply of bread, ten women shall bake your bread in a single oven and shall dole out your bread again by weight and you shall eat and not be satisfied. Does that doling your bread by weight sound familiar? But if in spite of this you will not listen to me but walk contrary to me, then I will walk contrary to you. In fury I and I myself will discipline you sevenfold for your sins. You shall eat the flesh of your sons and you shall eat the flesh of your daughters. And I will destroy your high places and cut down your incense altars. And you cast your dead bodies upon the dead bodies of your idols. And my soul will abhor you. And I will lay your cities waste and will make your sanctuaries desolate. And I will not smell your pleasing aromas. And I myself will devastate the land so that your enemies who settle in it shall be appalled at it and I will scatter you among the nations and I will unsheathe the sword after you and your land shall be a desolation and your city shall be a waste then the land shall enjoy its Sabbaths as long as it lies desolate while you're in your enemy's land. Then the land shall rest and enjoy its Sabbaths. As long as it lies desolate, it shall have rest, the rest that it, it did not have on your Sabbaths when you were dwelling in it. And as for those of you who are left, I will send faintness into their hearts in the lands of their enemies. The sound of a driven leaf shall put them to flight, and they shall flee as one flees from the sword. And they shall fall when none pursues. They shall stumble over one another as if to escape a sword, though none pursues. And you shall have no power to stand before your enemies, and you shall perish among all the nations. And the land of your enemies shall you eat up. And those of you who are left shall rot away in your enemies' lands because of their iniquity and also because of the iniquities of their fathers shall they rot away like them. Now, I want to do something here and you're going to need a piece of paper and a pen to walk with me through this quickly. Because you may not be able to flip back and forth as fast as I'm going to go. But I want you to put a finger here in Leviticus 26 verses 20 through 39 and put another finger back in Ezekiel chapter 4. What I want to do real quickly is show you that much of what was prophesied, if you will, what God said was going to happen to the nation of Israel because of the disobedience of him here in Leviticus 26, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years before their disobedience actually came to its fulfillment, Ezekiel prophesies almost word for word, if not word for word, the book, chapter 6 of Leviticus, chapter 20, 26 of Leviticus. Look at Leviticus chapter 26, verse 26. When I break your supply of bread, 10 women will bake in an oven. Uh, go back to Ezekiel chapter 4, verse 16, what we read earlier tonight. Moreover, he said to me, son of man, I will break the supply of bread in Jerusalem. Leviticus 26, verse 29. Look at verse 29. You shall eat the flesh of your sons and you shall eat the flesh of your daughters. Go to Ezekiel chapter 5. We'll get to this later in our study. But look at Ezekiel chapter 5, verse 10. Therefore, fathers shall eat their sons in your midst, and sons shall eat their fathers. Oh, by the way, that literally happened. In that two-year period, while they were being besieged, and they were stuck inside the city walls, and God cut off their supply of bread, 
Guess what they resorted to? It's in the history books. Cannibalism. God said way back in Moses' day, it's going to happen if you disobey me. And now it's prophesied by Ezekiel, and it happened. Go to Leviticus 26, 25. And I'll bring a sword upon you that shall execute vengeance for the covenant. And if you gather within your cities, I will send pestilence among you, and you'll be delivered into the hand of your enemy. Go to chapter 5, verse 12. Chapter 5 of Ezekiel, verse 12. A third part of you shall die of what? Pestilence and be consumed with famine in your midst. And a third part of you will fall by the sword. Uh, Go to Leviticus 26. Look at verse 33. And I will scatter you among the nations, and I will unsheathe the sword after you, and your land shall be a desolation, and your cities a waste. Go back to chapter 5 of Ezekiel. Look at verses 12 through 14. Third part, you'll die of pestilence and be consumed with famine in your midst. The third part shall fall by the sword around you. Third part, I will scatter to the winds, and I will unsheath the sword after them. This, thus shall my anger spend itself, and I will vent my fury upon them and satisfy myself. And they shall know that I am the Lord, that I have spoken in my jealousy when I send my fury upon them. Moreover, I will make you a desolation, just like he had just said, and an object of reproach among the nations all around you in the sight of all who pass by. Chapter 26, 26 again. Let me remind you, break yourself a pie of bread. And again in verse chapter 5, verse 16, when I send against you the deadly arrows of famine, arrows for destruction, when I send to destroy you, I'll bring more and more famine upon you and break your supply of bread. Here we see it again. A couple more real quickly. In Leviticus 26, 22, Leviticus 26, 22, and I will let loose the wild beast against you, which shall bereave you of your children and destroy your livestock. In uh, chapter 5, look at verse 17 of Ezekiel. I'll send famine and wild beasts against you, and they'll rob you of your children. All right, one last one. Leviticus 26, verses 30 through 31. Leviticus 26, 30 and 31. And I will destroy your high places and cut down your incense altars and cast your dead bodies upon the dead bodies of your idols. My my, My soul will abhor you, and I will lay your cities waste and make your sanctuaries desolate, and I'll not smell your pleasing aromas. All right, look at chapter 6 of Ezekiel. Look at verses 3 through 6. And you say, mountains of Israel, hear the word of the Lord God. Thus says the Lord God to the mountains and to the hills, to the ravines and the valleys. Behold, I, even I, will bring a sword upon you, and I will destroy your high places. Just like we just read. Your altars shall become desolate, and your incense altars shall be broken. And I will cast down your slain before your idols, and I will lay the dead bodies of the people of Israel before their idols. And I will scatter your bones around your altars. Wherever you dwell, the city shall be waste, and the high places ruined, so that your altars will be waste and ruined, your idols broken and destroyed, and your incense altars cut down, and your works wiped out. Now, we've got one minute left, and I'm going to do this fast. So I might take two minutes. But do you see how what God had said through Moses, word for word, now he's prophesying again through Ezekiel, and then it happens? There's something else in Leviticus 26 that we can't just skip. I have to send you out with some good news. Leviticus 26 actually has some good news. Go back to chapter 26 and look where we left off. We left off in verse 39. i got to read to you verse 40 and following. But this was prophesied down in the time of Moses. But if they confess their iniquity and the iniquity of their fathers and their treachery that they committed against me, And also in walking contrary to me, so that I walked contrary to them and brought them into the land of their enemies. If then their uncircumcised heart is humbled and they make amends for their iniquity, then I will remember my covenant with Jacob and I'll remember my covenant with Isaac and my covenant with Abraham and I'll remember the land. But the land shall be abandoned by them and enjoy its Sabbaths while it lies desolate without them. And they shall make amends for their iniquity because they spurned my rules and their soul abhorred my statutes. Yet for all that, when they are in the land of their enemies, I will not spurn them. Neither will I abhor them so as to destroy them utterly and break my covenant with them. For I am the Lord their God. But I will for their sake remember the covenant with their forefathers whom I brought out of the land of Egypt in the sight of the nations that I might be their God. I am the Lord. Do you see it? 
I'm not going to forget the promises I made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I will not utterly destroy them. Oh, I'm going to, I'm going to multiply my judgment sevenfold. It's going to look like they're going to be done with. It's going to look like there's no Israel anymore because of what I'm going to do. But it won't be a total destruction. Jeremiah actually says the exact same thing as God speaks to him in chapter 5. Let me just read it to you real quick and we'll close with this. In Jeremiah chapter 5, verses 14 through 19. As he's being used of God to speak the judgment that is coming, I love this word of promise in the midst of it. In chapter 5, verses 14 through 19, Jeremiah says this, and God through Jeremiah says this. Thus says the Lord, the God of the hosts, Behold, because you have spoken this word, behold, I am making my words in your mouth of fire, and this people wood, and the fire shall consume them. Behold, I'm bringing against you a nation from afar, O house of Israel, declares the Lord. It's an enduring nation. It's an ancient nation, a nation whose language you do not know, nor can you understand what they say. Their quiver is like an open tomb. They are all mighty warriors. They shall eat up your harvest and your food. They shall eat up your sons and your daughters. They shall eat up your flocks and your herds. They shall eat up your vines and your fig trees, your fortified cities in which you trust they shall beat down with the sword but even in those days declares the Lord I will not make a full end of you and when your people say why has the Lord our God done all these things to us you shall say to them as though you have forsaken me and serve foreign gods in your land so you shall serve foreigners in a land that is not yours in the midst of this God even told Jeremiah to tell him I'm not going to make a full end of you and folks we know from our study of Revelation and Daniel and all the books we've been looking at what is still to come for the nation of Israel. God is not done. We need to be praying. Things are getting crazier and crazier in the world. Don't be surprised. Don't be disheartened. Be excited. We're living in a day in which prophecy is being fulfilled. Don't try to figure it out and predict it. Just know that it's going to happen. Just as literally as Ezekiel's first prophecies came true, the rest of the book of Ezekiel is going to come true. And we'll see you next week. We'll deal with the 390 and 40 days. 40 days next week.